0: One economist said, you know, China's probably best described as an unruly teenager.
1: (laughs) I love that.
0: (laughs) And that's why we're so busy, you know, everything from its markets through to what's happening on the ground. It's a bit like that teenager. There's just so much to keep an eye on.
1: And welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. It is Thursday, February 10th. I'm Aki Ito, acting Tokyo Beer chief with Bloomberg News. Tori and Dan uh, sadly aren't going to be joining today. Uh, Dan's traveling in Arizona right now, and Tori is being the good global citizen that she is and volunteering for the evening. But I have a very special guest with me here. Enda Kern is on the line from Hong Kong. Hi, Enda. Hi, Aki. Hey, how's it going?
0: Very well, thank you.
1: Oh, good. You know, and along with being the nicest person I've ever talked to, who I've actually never met in person, (laughs) you're uh, Bloomberg's chief Asia economics correspondent. Tell us what you do every day.
0: Well, Aki, it's such an exciting canvas here. Um, you know, as you know, and our listeners know, the Asian economy is changing before our eyes. And, and there's so much going on, so much changing that we're trying to get our head around and to understand in terms of what it means for Asia, and what it means for the, for the rest of the world, of course, not least China. So. My role involves everything from news gathering and analysis through to editing and TV and, of course, doing the uh, Benchmark podcast.
1: (laughs) I love it. Well, you know, and we have you on the show today because we're talking about China, which has, you know, just completely dominated the headlines since the beginning of the year. And obviously that nervousness has spread throughout the world. I think it's been a pretty hectic start of the year for you, hasn't it?
0: Yeah, it has. And it all points to China, Aki. Um, you know, what's going on there in the world's second biggest economy is an unprecedented economic transformation, the scale of which we haven't seen before. And as China grows and changes, the world will start feeling those growing pains. And One economist said, you know, China's probably best described as an unruly teenager. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And that's why we're so busy, you know, everything from its markets through to what's happening on the ground. It's a bit like that teenager. There's just so much to keep an eye on.
1: I love it. Well, I guess beyond those, you know, immediate emergencies that we're seeing in the day-to-day headlines, there's kind of this longer-run crisis that's simmering below the surface. And, And that crisis is China's rapidly aging population and what's already a shrinking workforce. Uh, And I think this is something that you talk about all the time. And it's a crisis that other countries, I guess, have entered first. Japan, where I am right now, is a really good example of a country that's grappling with all these consequences in real time right now. But China's going to be there pretty soon over the next few decades. So, Enda, should we go through some of the key numbers first to set the stage? Sure, yeah. I guess, you know, we can start with the population. So China's currently home to 1.38 billion people, which makes it the world's biggest country by population. But I read that this isn't for long, that India's going to overtake China in the early 2020s. Gosh, Enda, if that happens, would China no longer be the world's largest country for like the first time in history?
0: Well, that's that's what the indications are at the moment, Aki.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And I guess it's working age population already started shrinking in 2014. And I laughed when you talked about China being a teenager right now, because, you know, the median age in 1980 was 22 years old. And right now, the median age is 37. So maybe a little older than a teenager. But by 2050, the median age is going to be 50 years old, so solidly middle-aged. And this is really interesting. By then, the average person in China is going to be actually much older than the average person in the U.S., in Canada, the U.K., all of Scandinavia, and a lot of other developed economies.
0: Uh Well, look, maybe China's on course for a midlife crisis. (laughs) You know, this this all comes back to the fertility rate, AKA, which at the moment is 1.55. That's one of the lowest in the world. And that's well below the rate that you need to maintain a constant population.
1: Right. So, and I guess behind all of this is one of the biggest social experiments in history, which was China's one-child policy that became a two-child policy last year. Can you talk about how these policies came about?
0: Sure. Look, Obviously, Aki, it's a very sensitive and difficult topic in China. And it's also a very personal one for all the people who've been impacted by it. And you could see that from the outpouring of emotion when China dropped the one-child policy late last year and went for the two-child policy, as you say. Um, It all began in the late 1970s and has been very described as one of the most ambitious demographic experiments that the world has ever seen. Uh, Partly, it started because in 1979, Deng Xiaoping was worried about a rising population in China, and he was worried about what impact a rising population would have on the nation's scarce resources. They thought the best thing to do would be to limit population growth, Uh, and the thinking was that way there would be enough to go around for everybody. But, of course, ultimately, that policy has only undermined growth, and the working-age population shrank last year for the first time in two decades. And now we're about to see the the cohort of senior citizens grow rapidly. So that's what the net result has been of China's one-child policy.
1: Right. And to confirm, China still only allows parents to have two children, right? It's not like there's been a lift on all restrictions altogether.
0: No, there has been a gradual easing of the one-child policy over recent years, but it officially came to an end uh, last year as the new five-year plan was being developed, and it's now formally a two-child policy.
1: I guess we should talk about why economists are worried about this demographic trend of uh, an aging and shrinking working-age population. Do you want to walk us through that?
0: Sure. Well, look... It's important, Aki, because when you have fewer people in the workforce, you have fewer people to grow the economy. And you have fewer people spending. And you know what? An aging society is actually pretty expensive. And I think before I came on, I just looked up some World Bank numbers. And it might be worth having a look at some of these World Bank numbers to understand the gravity of the issue in China. These are the figures that struck me. The number of babies plummeted as a result of the policy. So we went from 12.1 per 1,000 people in 2013. Uh, and that was from a post-reform peak of 23.3 in the, in the late 1980s. Wow! Um, so that's effectively, ha- that's effectively half. And it's below the US rate of about 13. Malaysia mm-hmm. has 18. And Vietnam has, um, has 16. So that kind of gives an indication of the, the, the scale of the problem they have on, on the birth rate. But of course, we know that China also has on the other side of the ledger, might be hard to believe for other parts of the world, but they have rising wages and labor shortages Mm -hmm. in some areas. So they're already losing out of competitiveness because of of shortage of labor force. And when you throw an aging population or an aging workforce into the mix, this demographic challenge is really not a challenge that China needs right now.
1: Right, right. And and one thing, you know, we've definitely seen here in Japan is just a, a budget that's stretched to the complete max um, to be able to pay for these fewer adults working to support the growing number of retirees. What's China's government debt situation like right now? Do you think it's going to be able to take it?
0: Well, okay. So f- sure, fiscally, China is probably in a stronger position than Japan. Its central government debt is quite low. But the overall, and I should say the, the savings rate, the household savings rate is is relatively high. But you know, the overall economy is under quite um, a lot of debt right now, both at corporate level and at state-owned enterprise level and local government level. So it's not like you know, China is altogether swimming in money that they can unleash and give their retirees a, a kind of a golden lifestyle. But I think I think the problem is that ultimately an aging population will cost money, and that will cost China money, and that will mm-hmm. boost healthcare costs and put bigger burdens on the younger people and on the young families in China to support their el- their elder relatives. Now, the United Nations projects that the number of Chinese people aged 60 and older will more than double in the next 25 years, to $431 wow. million. By 2050, that group share of the population will be around 37%, up from around 15% last year. So just think about the costs associated with that, um, with an aging society, with the various illness and disease that's associated with it, and the burden that puts on young people. That's that's something of a ticking time bomb.
1: Right, right. And uh, how old are you right now? 36. Thirty six. Okay, <laughs> so you're totally young, so I can say this in front of you. But there's also, you know, just that an older population leads to a less dynamic economy. It's one of the reasons why I love living in San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is just full of so many young people. You know, throwing out these crazy ideas. Most of them are terrible. Most of them are going to fail. But occasionally, you know, that one crazy idea sticks and changes the world. And you can't really imagine happening that a lot in a country with uh, so many uh, older
0: people. That's right. I mean, look, innovation at its core needs to be driven by ideas, by energy, by enthusiasm. And a lot of that is generated by you know, young people behind young startups coming out of universities, um, bustling with energy and full of ideas. We only have to look at Japan. Japan is still, of course, a global center for research and development and innovation. Um, but you know, it's also slipped behind the curve a bit. It, it, the smartphone generation pretty much passed by Japan. Mm-hmm. It was, of course, the home of um, home entertainment at one point, but the smartphone era has passed it by, so to speak. And you can see how lots of Korea and China are doing more in innovation. Front. But ultimately, when you have a declining birth rate and when you have an aging population, that will act as a break uh, on, on the workforce and that will limit the amount of talent that's in that workforce and that will feed through to what China contributes on, on the global stage. And I think that's definitely a consideration.
1: And uh, we just talked about all these broad forces, but in terms of numbers, what is China's economic growth going to look like in the future from uh, the current pace of about 7% growth per year?
0: Yeah, okay. So China grew in 2015 at 6.9% for the year. That was, on paper, its slowest pace of growth in a quarter of a century. Lots of economists are skeptical about the data and will question the numbers. But, you know, either way, take it that China grew somewhere above 6% last year. And when you consider the size of that economy and relative to its peers, it's probably not a bad performance, some would say. But going forward, as we mentioned at the start of the show, China is undergoing this big transformation right now. And they want to move away from an economy that's really fueled by, by debt-funded, heavy industry and one that's really reliant on exports to one that's driven much more by internal demand. So they want consumers spending money on the high street, and they want a roaring services industry. Now, so what does that mean? It means the growth rate will probably be lower, and, and at the um, NPC, which is ongoing in Beijing right now, the policymakers have come up with a new range. Rather than a hard target, they're now talking about a range of between 65 and 7% heading out over the next five years. Of course, that does give them wriggle room. Um, You know, it doesn't give them a hard target that they will be scolded for missing. On the other hand, it's still a pretty ambitious target when you compare it to both its emerging market peers and and obviously the developed world. So that means there's still a burden on China to hit that growth target. And that means they may need to, you know, rely on some of the old playbook, the sugar hit the growth spend more, borrow more, and inevitably that will lead to um, perhaps reform being pushed to one side at the expense of growth in the near term. And that's the real balancing act. That's the real juggle. That's the backdrop that's going on in China's economy right now, Aki.
1: Right, right. And and when you think about like the potential growth rate, like the speed limit of China's economy, surely that's not going to be 7% in a decade or two, right? That number has to come down.
0: Yeah, I think that's the. That's the feeling here, that the number will gradually start to come down. And when you consider this new range of six and a half to seven, one interpretation is, you know, actually that gives them quite a bit of wriggle room. Because as we move into the latter stages of the five-year plan, the new five-year plan that starts, um, you know, maybe they can go below six and a half. But I think the bigger point, Aki, is even if they do go below six and a half, even if it does go down to six and and lower, it's about Mm -hmm. sustainable growth for China's right. economy. And I think, I think both China and the world would welcome that kind of growth rather than the unsustainable breakneck pace we witnessed, we'll say, you know, over the last decade when it grew double-digit pace, but ultimately left the hangover of a huge debt mountain and a lot of problems in the economy that, that they're still trying to deal with. And indeed, we only have to look to Japan, what happened in the 1980s, and when the bubble eventually burst, it still hasn't fully recovered.
1: Speaking of sustainability, one of the interesting things, I think, is aging so far in the world has been a phenomenon mostly just for rich societies, right? That, you know, rich societies that already have this established infrastructure to care for a greater number of old people. but. China's still making that transition right now from a developing to developed economy like that economist you were talking about was saying, you know, it's kind of this teenager trying to mature into an adult. So do you think China's ready for this future of lots of old people?
0: No, it's not. It's important to remember that China is still a developing nation, Aki. Uh, Last week, I was in a meeting with someone who was recounting to us their experience of a hospital in rural China, um, and they recounted the hygiene standards, the facilities that were on offer, and the condition of the equipment in this hospital. And the point of the discussion was kind of a vivid reminder that vast parts of China are still very much a developing world. And when you move away from the fast-growing eastern coastal regions and the big financial hubs like Shanghai and, of course, the global capital that is Beijing, uh, there's still a long way to go in terms of catching up with the wealth of the developed world uh, in rural China. And that raises the question about how will these um, elderly people cope in the countryside as they go forward with on an already small family to support them. And, of course, that brings up the question of, of migration. As you know, um, there's considerable migration in China in terms of those leaving, wanting to leave the rural area and move towards the urban centres. I mean, that works up to a point, but it leaves behind um, a society that's quite isolated uh, and, of course, lacks the resources and lacks the funding to have the facilities that are needed in, in, on the healthcare side of things and, and on and social care. So I think that's probably a genuine cause for concern and, and that China's healthcare system isn't yet anything like on the scale that we would appreciate in the, in the developed world. And it's still quite imbalanced within China itself.
1: Wow. You know, in my completely amateur opinion, I feel like all of these problems were completely foreseeable from decades ago. So why do you think it took policymakers so long to scrap the one-child policy? And, and why, do, why does the government have restrictions on the number of children parents can have altogether?
0: Well, so, it, you know, this is a very emotive and difficult issue in in China. And the thinking behind it at the time was China would not be able to cope that the nation would not be able to feed itself um, if the population continued to grow at the pace that it was growing back in the late 70s when this policy was introduced. And remember, food security is a big issue for China. They, they really tried to promote an idea of self-reliance, and that's why um, they're... Moving around the world right now, buying all kinds of assets in, in the, in the agricultural world to make sure that China can be fed and that they have the technological know-how to grow crops and to, um, to transform their farms. And I think that's one of the reasons why they were so looking to change the policy because they were convinced that the population was was unsustainable, the size of it. They weren't appreciative mm. of the impact it would, it, they weren't appreciative of the impact it would ultimately have on economic growth and on their workforce and you know, they've now ended up in a situation where you have a declining birth rate that ultimately means you've got a smaller population from which to draw workers. And that's going to hold back growth. And in some places, it is driving up wages too quickly and causing factories to move out of China into cheaper locations in Southeast Asia. So I think you can consider it a policy mistake. And yes, it took far too long for China's leadership to realize the error of their ways.
1: Yeah, that's quite the dilemma though. You don't you don't want a growing population, but you don't want a shrinking population either. I would not want to be a Chinese policymaker right now. You know, and uh, maybe we should have titled this episode China and Japan (laughs) because we talk about Japan so much but, you know, being a Japanese person, having grown up here and also living here right now, Japan just seems like such a cautionary tale for China. I wasn't alive back then, but 30, 35 years ago there were apparently tons of people already talking about Japan's soon-to-rapidly-age population you know, and no one really did anything about it until it got to where it is today, which is a very bad situation. So do you think China is ultimately going to end up like Japan? Or do you think policymakers are going to be able to do something about it? Because it seems like one of the benefits of having a centrally planned government is that you can actually think about the long term instead of this messy short-termness that I think we're seeing in the U.S. presidential primaries right now where you just have to chase the immediate vote? Yeah, I think,
0: you know, in the case for the defense for China, I think um, they have made significant economic progress. Um, I mean, quite dramatic economic progress over the three decades since they started to to open up to the outside world. They have lifted... um, you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And when you compare their record on poverty eradication to, say, other developing nations, I think China probably um, deserves a bit of a, a strong tick for its efforts there. But at the same time, it's now facing some of the same problems, like you mentioned, that some of its trading rivals face. And one of the worries in China is that maybe lifting this uh, one-child policy and moving to the two-child policy is, is too little too late because attitudes have changed in recent years. Um one of the phenomenons noticed in China is that uh the in, in the urbanization of China means that many couples aren't interested in having a second child because of the costs associated with having a second child or indeed, you know, a bigger family that's everything from health care to education costs to general cost of living. And it's a feeling now that um, The urbanization of China has reached such such an extent that even with the government encouraging and introducing this 2 child policy, it may not be enough to turn the tide. And that's going to be the big test for China. And that will put the onus on them if they really want to learn from Japan's mistakes. They're going to have to do a lot more in terms of, um, you know, maternity care, maternity leave and paternity leave. For parents, are going to have to make sure all of these facilities are put in place that allow couples to continue their careers and to stay in the workforce. And I think in terms of those structural reforms, those are lessons they can learn from Japan and the mistakes that are made there too.
1: Yeah, definitely. So maybe as our last question here, and I'll I'll ask the, the hardest question that we uh, listed in our brainstorming session right now. By 2100, the world is projected to be 12 years older than it is today. So the entire world is currently in the process of aging, of maturing, although the world average is not, you know, happening as fast as it's going to happen in China. So ultimately, what do you think this means for the global economy when the entire world is going to be a little bit older
0: well, you know, ultimately, Aki, it has to act as a brake on on economic growth, right? It has to increase the burden on on the younger people of of the day, and it will, of course, increase the cost associated with supporting a family because we might reach a point where, you know, you have a young family supporting their own young kids and having to also prop up their elderly relatives. You can see how that scenario could could arise right around the right around the world, and that will be. A negative for global growth that will act as a brake on innovation, and I think that's just going to be a burden that will need to be carried unless, unless you know attitudes do change, and for example, places like China, the birth rate does start to improve, and more is done by governments and policymakers in terms of child subsidies and in terms of doing more for paternity care for parents and ensuring young parents can stay in the workforce if all of that happens, maybe we can book the trend. But I would say the scenario that you paint for the world economy probably isn't very positive. And uh, it's not a very light note, but I think it's a serious one.
1: <laughs> well, uh, that's certainly something for global policymakers to be thinking about. And uh, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a great discussion.
0: Thank you so much, Aki.
1: And thanks again for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We're going to be back again next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. Also on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Google Play. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review the show. This really helps more people find our podcast. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can talk to us and follow us on Twitter at Enda Karin for our guest Enda and Aki Ito7 for me. See you next week.